God, you ride the stallion of history. You control it. You are the only one who can break that stallion. We desire to see you as creator and controller of all things. We want to tremble before your word like the psalmist did. May we never be satisfied with our spiritual progress. May we never neglect what is necessary to be growing, thriving, and advancing in our walk with you. Father, we've already been in Revelation for six weeks, covered four churches, countless hours of exegeting gospel gold. It's very tempting to think we've discovered all there is to discover. We've mined all the gold there is to mine. But that is an irresponsible viewpoint, an unfaithful logic. So we banish the thought we adjust our theology and we approach your bottomless word. Help us to see from Revelation 3, 1 through 6, the inexhaustible riches of Christ. May we leave not saying, what an interesting sermon, but rather, what an irresistible Christ. This is our collective petition. Amen. In order to understand today's text, I need to reset the context for you. John, a first century follower of Christ, is on an island. He's not on an island resort drinking cocktails with a little umbrella in the glass. He's not on a Bahama island. <laughs> He's on a prison island, Patmos. Patmos was a penal settlement. It was an eight-mile by five-mile island where offenders were sent. It was first-century Alcatraz. Criminals, murderers, thieves, abusers, Roman traitors were exiled to this volcanic island and forced to deal with the rugged terrain. They were sent there to labor and die. None of them thought they would ever leave the island, including John. The inmates were forced to work stone quarries. It was brutal. Sometimes deadly labor. These ill-fed, ill-clothed men were under a watchful eye and a ready whip. John wasn't sent to the island because he robbed a bank. He was there because of his faithful, uncompromising, courageous preaching of Jesus Christ. Origen, who was born maybe 90 years after John was exiled to this island, said that the emperor Domitian sent John to Patmos himself. We've talked about Domitian being a moral catastrophe of a man. It's rumored he poisoned his brother Titus with a fish dinner. He was extremely vain and self-conscious. He had spindly legs and a protruding belly and was Mr. Sensitive about his baldness. Crack a ball joke and... He may put you to death. Domitian's paranoia seized him. In order to obtain information on possible rebels and plots on his life, he cut off hands and scorched genitals. Did he do that to John? I don't know. 
Tertullian, who was born 50 years after John was on Alcatraz, said John was exiled after he was plunged in boiling oil. So there he is. John, possibly with third-degree burns, laboring an insane number of hours in the rock quarry. He's not a young man. He's old. Scholars estimate over 80. Some say 90. While on the island, the resurrected Christ appeared to John in a vision. It's been 50 or 60 years since John has seen the resurrected Christ. And the vision of Christ completely wrecks John. John did not go up to the resurrected Jesus and say, Hey, what's up, my brother? It's been a long time. You doing good? Family good? Hey, let me holler at you a minute about these long work hours they're making me pull around here. No. There is nothing casual and safe about this encounter. Jesus Christ is magnificent and terrible. John sees Christ wearing a priestly robe. He's also wearing a gold sash. You may think of sashes that go diagonal from the shoulder down and back around, but this sash was like a, a golden belt, a belt that wasn't meant to hold anything up. This did not go around the waist, but around the chest. It was similar clothing to what a high priest would wear in the tabernacle. The resurrected Christ has white hair. It's stunningly and brilliantly white. A blizzard of white. He has eyes like a flame of fire. He has an infallible gaze. All things are naked and open unto his eyes. He has penetrating intelligence. Searching pupils. His feet glow. His voice is majestic, powerful, and effective. It's loud, like the Niagara Falls. It's not the gentle sound of the ocean lapping against the sand. The voice of the risen Christ is arresting. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. When John beheld the matchless splendor, the fatal brilliance, he was smitten to the ground. He stunned. Jesus commissions John to get up and write seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. Modern-day Turkey. John sees Jesus walking among Seven golden lampstands, which Jesus interpreted for us in chapter 1. I mean, we can't mess this up. The seven golden lampstands represent the seven churches. What is Jesus doing in this vision? He's doing priestly duties. Taking the office that belongs to him. What is he doing among the seven candlesticks? Walking. The exalted Christ walks among his churches, moving among the candlesticks. He's in the midst of his beloved bride. He's trimming wicks and carving wax, breathing life back into the flickering flames. He's making sure the candles don't go out. He keeps his churches burning. The majestic Christ walks among his scattered churches. And he is fully apprised to what goes on 
in each of them. On this map, you see the red circle. That's where John's Alcatraz was located, Patmos. He's writing to these seven churches, which were along a common postal route. We read, we read first the letter to the church at Ephesus. Then we read the letter to the church at Smyrna. Then the church at Pergamos. Then Thyatira. Now we will exposit Jesus' letter to the church at Sardis. As we've worked through each letter to each church, we've titled the churches. The church at Ephesus, we titled the Heady Church. The church at Smyrna, we titled the Persecuted Church. The church at Pergamum, we titled the Compromising Church. The church at Thyatira, we titled the Tolerant Church. And now we reach the church at Sardis. And I'm calling it the Growing But Dying Church. As we get to the sixth church and the seventh church, I'll, I'll title those for you in the weeks to come. But I want you to notice that every church has the same phrase repeated to them. To the angel of the church in. The risen Lord speaks to the angel of each church. Now who are the angels? There are three possible views. This is a bit of a review, but we need to understand it for some of the things that are going to come along later. Option one, the angels are angelic beings. Guardian angels. Some believe each church had an angel assigned to it like a guardian angel. Seven churches, seven angels. Proponents of this view, Kent Hughes, Tony Morita, D.A. Carson, uh, Origin, uh, Craig Kester, Daniel Aiken, Tom Schreiner, R.C. Sproul, Osborne, G.K. Bill. However, some of these men believe it's a representative angel, not a guardian angel, and so they don't fit comfortably in option one. They're actually a weird mix between option one and three. I should probably move some of these over to, to option three, but we'll, we'll go with this. Here's the, here's the weakness with that view. Angels are sinless. Why would Jesus write a letter to angels? The church is the one who is nailing it or missing it, not the angel. Give a message to a human, John, who then gives it to an angel? Why not simply speak to the angel? And where do angels receive their mail? Option one. Option two, senior pastors. The Greek word for angel can mean messenger. Who is the messenger of the church? The senior pastor. Proponents of this view, H.P. Charles, John MacArthur, Herschel York, Stephen Davey, Hendrickson, Peter Lightheart. Um, I think the weakness here is that angels are mentioned about 70 times in Revelation, which accounts for 25% of their mentions in the Bible. In all those mentions, not one time does it refer to a human Plus, New Testament churches had a plurality of elders, not one senior pastor, so it doesn't fit the first century structure. See, pastors want to think they're angels, but they're not. Option three, a symbol of the church itself. This view holds that angels were a way of personifying the prevailing spirit of the church, the church itself. Proponents of this are, are Mounts, Goldsworthy, Ocumenius, Azertia, Sweet, and uh, Leon Morris. And then 
really, let's, let's just be honest, it doesn't matter where everyone else stands on the matter. It only matters where that last person stands. We know from the last verse of chapter 1 that the angels are seven stars. The angels are seven stars. Whatever the angels are, the seven stars are. They're the same thing. Jesus says in Revelation 1.20, the seven stars, and I quote, the seven stars are the seven angels. So option one, Jesus is writing to actual angels and he holds angels in his hands. I don't think so. Option two, Jesus is writing to senior pastors and he holds senior pastors in his hands. I don't think so. Option three, Jesus is writing to churches and he holds churches in his hand. I'm, I'm in option three. It seems to be the view with the least problems. Jesus holds the churches. They are his. He holds the seven stars in his hands. Remember, this is symbolic apocalyptic literature. It uses symbols to teach truths. Look at verse one. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. This is Christ's self-description. Revelation is a book more about who Jesus is than how the world is going to end. It's a Christocentric book, not an eschatology-centric book. We have the full description of Jesus Christ in chapter 1, and each of the seven churches receives a piece of that. The weaknesses in these churches can be traced back to a faulty or incomplete view of their Christ. Jesus writes each church to correct something. How does he correct it? By revealing certain aspects of his character. To the heady church, he walks among the lampstands. To the persecuted church, he's the first and the last. To the compromising church, he has a sharp two-edged sword. To the tolerant church, he has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. To the church at Sardis, he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now people go wild on numerology and a lot of their teaching is, is the result of a hyperactive imagination. But the number seven is fairly unmistakable. You find it 55 times in the book. It goes back to the seven days of creation. It speaks of perfection, completion. The seven spirits here is God's perfect spirit. The third person of the Trinity. Proverbs speaks of the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits speaks of God's perfect Holy Spirit. There's another seven. Jesus Christ is holding seven stars. We know from chapter 1, he's holding seven stars in his right hand. His right hand speaks of favor and protection and ownership. The churches are under his authority. I said all that to say this, church. Jesus has a firm grip on his churches with his right hand. And he holds his spirit in his left hand. If only he would bring his hands together. Verse 1 continues. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. Robert Plummer, the Greek scholar, says the construction of this verse 
emphasizes your works longer and louder. Your works. Jesus says it to all the churches. I know your, and usually it's works. This is the only church among the seven that nothing positive is said. Jesus said, I know your works. And later he tells them their works are incomplete. Not a single word of praise to the church at Sardis. He didn't commend their works. He just mentioned them. Jesus' pattern has been to commend the churches and then rebuke the churches. He commended and then rebuked the heady church. He commended but no rebuke to the persecuted church. He commended and then rebuked the compromising church. And he commended and then rebuked the tolerant church. Jesus gives each church an honest and accurate evaluation. But to the church in Sardis, we have no encouragement. Unlike the previous four churches, no commendation. This is just a bad church. And Jesus wants them to know at any moment he could crush them. Now you see we're continuing to, to build on this chart. I'm, I'm in my seventh sermon in Revelation and I didn't have a chart. And what is Revelation without a chart? <laughs> Hopefully this one will be truer to the book than some of the crazy ones that you grew up on. Jesus only has rebuke for this church. Verse 1 continues, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive. Let's stop here. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus admits the church at Sardis has a great rep in the community. The citizens of Sardis love the church. To those living in the region of Asia Minor, it would have appeared that this was the flagship church. Other churches said, when we grow up, we want to be like Sardis. The church at Sardis is simply the place to go. It would have been on the front page magazine of the fastest growing churches in Asia Minor. You must understand, beloved, that Jesus writes to this church in her glory days. They keep running out of space. They can't keep up with the growth. Look at how Jesus is blessing this church. The community loves them. Other churches love them. Someone moves into the area. I'm, I'm looking for a new church. Oh, you need to check out the church at Sardis. There's only one place to go to church around here. Well, if, if you want to go to a church that's alive, this is a growing church. And families, oh man, families in Sardis, have you seen their children's program? I heard a pastor tell a story of a membership class at the largest church in town. The teacher of the membership class went around and asked everyone why they want to join this church. One lady said, oh, it's simple. Everyone who is anyone in this town is a member of this church. That's Sardis. We are the place to be and everyone who attends this church, there's someone. Tradition said John made it off Alcatraz. Tradition says he visited each church but was too weak to walk so they carried him from place to place. He stands before this church 
What an honor to have the last living apostle preach this Sunday morning. He announces, The resurrected Christ appeared to me on Patmos and told me to dictate a letter for you. I can see now their faces as the letter is read. You have a reputation of being alive. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. All the other churches are talking about us. The community is talking about us. Now Jesus is talking about us. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Jaws hit the floor. No one expected this. No church has higher membership numbers, higher attendance numbers. No church can touch their list of ministries. They had no idea they were dead. They thought they were thriving. They are flabbergasted. We are growing. How can we be dead? Both statements can be true. A church can be growing, busting at the seams, while at the same time the church be dying, gasping for air. The church is dying, but their buildings are not in disrepair. The church is dying, but they keep breaking records. The church is dying, but they've never seen so many children coming on Sundays. They are considered by the community to be alive and well, but they are considered by Christ to be at the point of death. In fact, Jesus checks their spiritual pulse He's not getting a beat. They have flatlined. They are dying. They are going, going, gone. They are dead. They are stone dead. They are a morgue with a steeple. We are given the pr pronouncement here, but not the autopsy report. We don't know the cause of death. We just know they aren't breathing. Bring the body bag. Call the coroner. Bring the toe tag. Let's start planning the funeral. Let's notify the closest of kin. Rigor mortis is setting in. The city of Sardis was known for a famous necropolis. Now, etymology, et, et, you know what I'm saying. Etymologically, there we go, there we go. Etymologically, uh, necropolis means city of the dead. Most cities have large graveyards just outside the city, but not Sardis. It, it had a graveyard in the city on a large mountain. In this city were graves of long dead kings. Huge burial mounts visible from miles away. It's an elevated city of the dead. And it's parabolic of the church. Dead kings and dead citizens aren't the only thing that needs to be buried out there. You need to bury the church out there. Here's a shovel. Start digging. The city of Sardis was the city of the dead. The church of Sardis was the church of the dead. I have seven truths for you today and here's the first. Truth number one, a church may receive accolades from lots of other people, 
but not from the one person who really matters, Jesus Christ. Compare this church with all the other churches in Revelation. (laughs) This church that received the most praise from the community received the least praise from the Lord. No commendation. This church pleased men, but it did not please God. Let's put on our thinking caps here for for a moment. What's not said here? Nothing about persecution or opposition, like in all the other churches. They did nothing and said nothing to receive opposition from the culture. The true church is always at odds with the world. This church lived in a way that caused no offense to the Romans and no offense to the Jews. Those two groups that beat down everyone in those other churches. Why do they have no problem with this one? Why did both Jews and Romans leave this church undisturbed? James Hamilton says there was a a thriving Jewish community there. And archaeologists have discovered a synagogue that could fit a thousand Jews. A thousand Jews who denied that Jesus was the Messiah. We have no mention in this letter of a synagogue of Satan. Not like in two of the other letters. The synagogue of Satan didn't have major problems with this church. The pagan Romans did not have major problems with this church. They had an excellent reputation because they were thoroughly secularized. They faced pressure to blend with the culture. And they did. They are a church that has succumbed to the world. Mostly populated by non-believers. How any church living under the reign of old Baldy Domitian in the first century was not completely hated, I don't know. It bothers me that the church at Sardis has sunshine all the time. If you have sunshine all the time, you're a desert. There needs to be times of struggle in a church. This is good for us. The community harping praise on the church? The community harping praise on the church? That was foreign to healthy first century Christianity. Truth number two. It is possible for a church to appear spiritually alive, but be spiritually dead. Spiritually dead. Are you saying they're spiritually dead, Kyle? I mean, they must not be baptizing anyone. The pews must be empty if they're spiritually dead. Wrong. All the signs of life are there. My, my favorite movie growing up was, <laughs> was Weekend at Bernie's. Uh, my, my dad, you've seen that theological historical video. Uh, my dad took me to see it in the movie theaters. It's wicked. Don't watch it. But, but in the movie, Bernie Lomax is dead. But they keep dressing him up and moving his hands and turning his head like he's alive. The church at Sardis is Bernie Lomax. They are dead. But people are fooled. 
because of all the bustling activity. It looks impressive, but it's just dead people playing church. This church is the home of the walking dead. And Sardis, Sardis is no historical anomaly of our, in our day. Our country is dotted with the church of Sardis. Do you see churches the way Jesus sees churches? Reputation is not reality. Now, I'm risking sounding like an old man who's yelling, get off my lawn. But you need to know this. Just because the church in the West has learned to market itself doesn't mean it's alive. What a building. What a band. I mean, they've got indoor playgrounds. Drop your kids off to a party zone and don't forget their bathing suits. The church has a splash pad outside. The marketing strategy for churches is this. Perception is reality. Exact opposite of Jesus. The social media game is off the chain. They are slick and smooth. They are faddish and trendy. Let's look at their Facebook reviews and their Google reviews. And Jesus says, you need to look at my review. It's the only one that matters. Tony Morita said, the question for us is do we want the reality or do we want the reputation? Do we really want to be alive or do we just want name recognition? Vance Havner, that old preacher, said of Sardis, she had it all in the show window, but nothing in stock. Verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Notice here that Jesus tells the church to wake up. <laughs> now, wait a minute. S stop. Are they sleeping? I thought they were dead. Okay, they're, they're, they're just, they're not dead, they're just sleeping. Then Jesus says, you are about to die. Wait, I thought they were just sleeping and needed to be woken up, not resuscitated. What is happening? Jesus is mixing metaphors. The church is dead. The church is dying. The church is asleep. Wake up has a context. That phrase was used for watchmen guarding a city. If they slept on the job and were not alert, their city could be overtaken. And Jesus tells the church they are sleeping on the job. They are not watchful. Which is, which is really interesting considering... The, the city history in Sardis. Two times this, in the city's history, they failed to watch and wake up, and each time the city was destroyed by sneaky enemies. And Sardis, Sardis sat on a hill, and on, on three sides were massive cliffs. So they only defended one side, because the other three were unclimbable. I'm talking about rock walls that rose to 1,500 feet. The city seemed impregnable. But on one occasion, Cyrus sieged the city, trying to starve them out. 
And while waiting, they saw a guard drop his helmet from the guard tower. And then they watched him as he snaked his way down the 1,500-foot cliff. And they, they saw the path that he took. And then they followed him and took the same path into the city to take it over. <laughs> it was an embarrassing military debacle. Who drops a helmet and then goes and picks it up while the city is under siege? Probably a private. <laughs> 300 years later in their history, Persian soldiers did nearly the same thing to take the city. Not once, but twice the city fell because of careless confidence, misplaced security. The city fell because they slumbered so Jesus reaches back into their history and says, wake up, keep watch. So what happened to you physically will not happen to you spiritually. What happened to your city will not happen to your church. This is not the common word for wake up, like well, wake up sleepyhead. No, it has the military bent to it. It means to arouse yourself. Like, like, like Samson got up and shook himself. Wake up and shake yourself. You're about to die. You're about to go into cardiac arrest. Your spiritual arteries are clogged by plaque. He continues, verse 2, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Which leads us to truth number three. You can do a lot of works for God but they are incomplete works. Jesus looked at the church and found their works to be incomplete. It wasn't that they were not working. They were working, but he found their works to be incomplete. The word found is a judicial word. After a judicial investigation, divine scrutiny, he determined that the tree was all leaves and no fruit. They were a beehive of activity, but obviously did not keep the main thing, the main thing. You can do incomplete works in the sight of God. Oh, but I did it with a sincere heart. It doesn't matter. Churches can lose passion for the original mission. They can do lots of deeds of mercy. Look at how many houses we've built. Look at how many turkeys we give out at Thanksgiving. These are not bad things, but they're not the main things. We are not seeking to make the world a better place from which to go to hell. We can't get our attention on things that are not central to the gospel. Do not fall asleep. Truth number four. Don't think Sardis could never happen to FFC. Don't think it could never happen to us. Within 40 years of Paul and his team planting this gospel-centered church, and it was a gospel-centered church. Within 40 years of Paul and his team planting this gospel-centered church, Sardis lost focus. They fell asleep. They started snoozing on the job. FFC, don't look at this church from a distance and point all oh, those seeker-sensitive places designing their whole ministry on what attracts non-Christians. 
Jesus didn't write this letter so you could look at other churches. He wrote this letter so you could look at yours. The only churches that are not falling asleep are the ones that are concerned about falling asleep. Are you asleep? Spiritually slumbering? Attending? But not engaged? Not having a passion for Christ? Spiritually unconscious? Are you yawning at the gospel? Don't think, well, you know, Kyle, Sardis really doesn't apply to us like all the other letters did. No, that's careless confidence. See, I knew this letter would be my hardest letter to bring to you. Because we're at our zenith so far. We have more people than ever before. We have bigger, better buildings than ever before. But we would not be the first expositional church to die. We would not be the first or the last church that really holds to the sovereignty of God to die. We are not above having a mere form and appearance of life but nothing be underneath it. This building is not above becoming a decorated coffin. Pray for this church. Pray for the members. Pray for the pastors. And stay on watch for your own souls. Dead churches are filled with dead people. Verse 3. Remember... Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. Repent. Notice this. Repent is not told to every church. Some churches had worked in healthy rhythms of daily repentance. Not this one. Sardis is full of self-congratulations. They are too busy watching themselves to repent. They are so depraved, they probably think this church is about them. <laughs> like a hidden cancer, you can look healthy on the outside, but be dying on the inside. And that's what Jesus' divine x-ray revealed of this church. Which leads us to truth number five. The command of God comes with the enablement of God. They are told to remember Keep and repent. All those commands come with the enablement of God. Remember. Remember what? Remember what you have received. That's the word of God. They have the Old Testament and much of the New Testament was in circulation. Remember what you have received and heard. What is heard? They heard the word being preached and taught. That's how the church was founded. Jesus tells the dying church, remember the scripture. Remember how important to you it used to be. Dying churches begin to devalue the word of God. De-emphasize the preaching of the word of God. I've been at the bedside of quite a few dying people. You know how I can always tell if they're dying? They stop eating. 
You know how you can tell if you're spiritually dying? You stop eating the word. You stop eating it privately throughout the week and corporately on Sunday. You don't come to feast anymore. You've lost your spiritual appetite. Jesus commands them first, remember, then keep. They had big assemblies, but no obedience. The church died because they stopped keeping the word of God. They died because they stopped obeying the word of God. How do you know if a church is dying? Look at how they're handling the word of God. Remember, keep, repent. That's my favorite command. You can repent. You can change your spiritual downward spiral. You can regain spiritual consciousness. You can come back to life. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You may want to mark down that verse 3 isn't a threat. It's a promise. If there is no repentance on your part, there will be action on my part. I will come for a visit. A visitation of judgment. Jesus will not come like a thief in every way. But in one specific way. When you do not expect it, in stealth. Not that he is coming to steal, but that he is coming to judge. You say, Kyle, what is Jesus coming to do? Whatever he pleases. Because he holds the church in his hand. My guess would be to end it, crush it, shut it down. Verse 4. Yet you have still a few names. It's turning positive. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white. For they are worthy. There is a wakened minority among the sleeping majority. There is a remnant that hasn't defiled themselves by wallowing in the muck of the world's way. There is a living branch among the dead tree. A few faithful who have not soiled their garments. Clothing here is a metaphor for their spiritual condition. Some have not stained their clothes. They still walk in white. Now what does that mean? They aren't meriting their salvation. But they're walking worthy of it. Verse 5, first four, verses, first four words of verse 5. The one who conquers. Now notice that Jesus uses this language to every church. If you are a Christian, you are a conqueror. Conquerors are not some elite group like seal forces. Remember Daniel Herbster's sermon series through 1 John? All Christians are overcomers, 1 John 5, 4 and 5. It's another word for Christian. Being a conqueror is not something you aspire to, but something you are. 
There are no shades of gray in apocalyptic literature. It's always black and white. You're either an overcomer or a succumber. And some of you think you're alive. You're not alive. You are dead. You think you're an overcomer. You're not. You love Sardis, not Christ. And either your doctrine or your life will end up playing that out. Proving you were never really a Christian. You will not preserve to the end. You will not conquer. Take this as a warning. You can attend a church that makes you feel good about yourself. You can attend a church that makes you feel good about your life. You can volunteer at the church and do lots of works. But they're incomplete and you will die and go to hell. Evaluate your soul. Why is it that you love to soil your garments? Because you've never genuinely embraced the gospel. You've never authentically repented of your sin. You've never entirely forsook this world to follow Christ. You're a succumber, not an overcomer. But there's good news, friend. <laughs> Beg God for his salvation and rest in the finished work of Christ in your place. Truth number six. God will give his redeemed ultimate salvation. I love this. Have you repented of your sin and trusted Christ alone for your salvation? Then you have this to look forward to. Three rewards. First reward, verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Seven times in this book, we find the redeemed in white clothes. The bride wears white on the wedding day. The clothing of the resurrected life is white. Not exactly back to the garden, but better. Jesus dresses us because we cannot dress ourselves. Reward number one, he's going to clothe us in white garments. Second reward, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, let's walk through some historical stuff here. Each, each child born in Sardis had to be registered within 40 days of his or her birth. The city kept books with the names of the residents. It was like this for all the cities. When people were convicted of a serious crime, their names were removed from the civic register. Crimes got you blotted out. The apostle John likely had his name blotted out, removed from the Ephesus register when he was banished to Patmos. And this is the cultural context for this reward. Jesus says, I will never blot your names out of the book of life. The book of life is mentioned five times, I think, in Revelation. Now, some point to this verse to support conditional election. Conditional election. That your name is written in the book of life and that it can be blotted out. But that's not what the text is saying. He's affirming something by negating the opposite. If you are familiar with rhetoric, it's, it's called litotes. It's a form of verbal irony in which understatement is used 
to emphasize a point by stating the negative to further affirm, affirm the positive. No name has ever been blotted out of the book of life. You may get blotted out of the citizenship role, but never get blotted out of the heavenly role. You may get blotted out of the city ledger, but you will never get blotted out of the divine ledger. One scholar said it well. This is not a veiled threat. It is a promise. This is not a veiled threat. It is a promise. The believer will never need to fear that somehow or someday in all of eternity, he may wake up to find out that God changed his mind and his eternity is no longer secure. You can't lose your salvation. God will give you the perseverance to continue. If you do not persevere, if you prove not to be an overcomer, it means you were never in the book to begin with. You were never a Christian from the jump. You can't keep yourself in the book. <laughs> he keeps you in the book. The third reward. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Jesus not only clothes his pure ones, but he knows them by name. He knows his sheep by name. He says, not only am I not going to take your name off the books, I'm going to confess your name. Jesus will speak our names. Luke chapter 12, verse 8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. Matthew 10, 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. All three rewards are a symbol of ultimate salvation. You might find this interesting that all three rewards here and all the previous rewards to the previous churches are all drawn directly from the final vision in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. So it's really interesting. Each letter draws from the first vision in chapter 1 and then each letter draws from the last vision in chapters 21 and 22. Look at verse 6. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's a, that's a weird thing to say, isn't it? I mean, you really think about it? I mean, at first read, you might think, are there a bunch of earless people running around? I'm only going to talk this morning to the people that have ears. Are there people that don't have ears? This isn't the only time Jesus has used this phrase. He, of course, used it to every church before this one in Revelation. But he also used it before Calvary. He used it before Calvary and after Calvary. Jesus preached to a group one day about the seed, the gospel, and the different types of soil. About the gospel and the different types of, of hearts. And he said, he who has an ear, let him hear. See, the problem is never with the seed. It's always with the ground. And the problem is never with the letter. It's always with the ears. There are many types of soil. There are many types of ears. He who has an ear, a good ear, let him hear. Now, this is the final version of our chart. Well, until the next 
two churches. But you can see why a lot of pastors preach these letters with the same outline. Every week for seven weeks, they give the same outline to their people. I chose to take a different approach. You're welcome. Verse 6 is, is interesting. Verse 6 is now the second mention of the Holy Spirit to this church. What brings life is not gimmicks or activities or programs. It's the Spirit. Who holds the Spirit in one hand and the church in the other? And may He bring them together. If we have life, it's not because of any doing of our own. It's because the Spirit breathed life into us. Which leads us to our final truth. As long as Jesus still has the church in his hand, there is hope. There is hope. Sat down with a man recently. And he said, you think there's any hope for our church? Think we're dead. Whatever happened to the church at Sardis? Did they repent or were they removed? Did God's spirit breathe on them or did they stop breathing? Were their works acceptable in the sight of Jesus or were they incomplete? Did they experience a reformation or a funeral? <laughs> well, according to history, 90 years after this letter was written, Melito came to pastor the church at Sardis. It was no longer a growing and dying church, but a faithful and repenting church. Some say Melito wrote his first partial, the first partial commentary on the book of Revelation. Imagine writing a commentary on the letter that Jesus wrote to your church. I bet that was fun. The church at Sardis is no longer cozy with the culture. And I know that because Melito was put to death for his uncompromising stand for Christ. History tells us he was buried. You never guess where he was buried. In Sardis. In the necropolis on the hill. This is a church that went from dying in the hand of God to dying for the glory of God. Let's stand together. Count us in that number, Lord. <laughs> Protect this church. Hold us in your hand. Spare us from ourselves. And keep us burning hot for you. This was good for us, Lord. And why are we surprised? Your word is always good for us.